If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. As you can tell, as long as my dad's around, I am his little boy. <laughs> Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this morning again. Our desire is to give you all of the, the honor, the respect, the attention that you so rightly deserve. Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship you. We've gathered here because of who you are, because of what you've done for us. And so, Father, we have dedicated ourselves to ensuring that all that we do here this morning is for you because of who you are and what you've done. We've sung together, singing praises to your name, but also, Father, singing really to each other to remind ourselves of your grace and goodness and love and kindness. We have spent time reading your word and hearing your word being read. We spent time confessing our sins. We've also, Father, uh, spent time giving back to you as we have given our tithes and offerings to continue to support the work that goes on in your name. Father, we now come to our worship, to the part of our worship where we will continue by focusing again on your word, desiring, Lord, to hear from you, desiring to understand better your plan, what it is that you are seeking to accomplish, what it is you would have us to do, how our relationship with you can be strengthened, how our walk with you may be one that is filled with a, a better witness of Christ, that, Father, we may glorify you in every aspect of our living. And as always, Father, we are grateful that you have preserved your word for us, that we, may, that we may have it, that we may possess it, that we may read it, that we may study it, that we may declare it. And so, Father, as we always do, we ask that you bless our time in your word this morning. And the Lord, it would be indeed profitable for us. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're stopping there. Uh, we have been going through our introduction of Matthew. We still have a little bit to go, but we're going to actually begin to deal with verse 1. We're going to be looking at four words, the son of David, and that would be the message today. And the reason why we're going to be going through that and explaining this, we'll be going a little bit to the Old Testament talking about the covenants that God made, is we need to, it's important for us to understand something. So when, when the book of Malachi, when you finish that book, you know, there's a period of time that takes place before the birth of Jesus Christ. Make, some call it the years of silence. There's no prophet operating in Israel during that time. God is not speaking to them. Over 400 years goes by. I don't know if you've thought about it, but 400 years is a really long time. Our nation is not 400 years old. It's, it's, it's an immense amount of time. But, but what we need to think about, though, or understand is it, it's not like God was just sitting in heaven. That's how I think I send Jesus now. It wasn't some arbitrary decision. It wasn't some last-minute idea. It wasn't where God was thinking all this time about what, what could he really do to help. I mean, none of that was going on. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, there's this plan that God has been enacting from the very beginning. 
All of this, in one sense, we would say, has been thought through. Nothing is happening by accident. The timing of all of these things is, is perfect. God's timing is perfect. It's not only when he's good and ready to do certain things, but he is the one that's working in history, working in peoples, working in cultures, bringing history along to a particular point in time when particular things would be taking place. So they would happen in a particular way for a particular reason. And so we need to realize that all these things are connected. In fact, when you look at Genesis and begin to make your way through that, there is this plan that God has, and it does culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about the person of Jesus Christ in a lot of ways, but primarily that the coming of Christ is, I guess you could kind of divide it into two main segments. And one is the first coming, and then there's the second coming. And those two things are of great importance and are deeply intertwined. So even though the atonement obviously is very important, and it is, it, it's the, the climax in a sense of history, that's not the end of it. Because all that continues to point to what God is going to be doing in the future, something had to be dealt with first, which was sin, and, and that's what's going on here. And obviously that's where our focus is, as it should be, and our understanding of both the past, present, and the future. And so when it comes to then Israel and these covenants that God has made, we will see the consistency of God, the plan of God, and how he's bringing all of these various aspects of history together. So then the coming of Christ did not take place just in a vacuum. It wasn't just, you know, obviously God's never bored, but it wasn't like God was bored and says, what do I do now? I know, I think I'll do this. That's not what took place. And we sometimes approach it that way. You know, we sometimes may think, maybe uh, without trying to do that, that the Bible in a sense begins with Matthew. Or at least the most important things begins with Matthew, you know, with the Gospels and the coming of Christ. And that the things that happened before that, well, you can take it or leave it. No, you, you can't take it or leave it. God has preserved for us the, the entire 66 books. He, he wants us to study the whole counsel of God. Every aspect of this is important, even the genealogies. Now, the genealogies may not be all that important to you, but they are very important to certain people, and they, there are various points that are made as a result of the genealogies. So I'm not saying you need to spend the next three years studying genealogies, but, but it's not something you just kind of overlook and say, well, that's just unimportant. It's not a sin if you're reading through the Bible at times to skip the genealogies. Some people think, oh, I, I can't do that. That would be, no, that's not wrong. Now, if you have always, your whole life, skip the genealogies, that may not be a good idea. Uh, but, you know, there are times when I read through the Bible and I get the genealogies and I just go, boop, three chapters later, and then I go on. And I've not sinned against God when I've done that. Uh, and sometimes genealogies can be difficult just because of the names. They're not exactly English names. Uh, and even if you read into yourself, you're still stumbling over them. Uh, and it can just... You know, it, just, it can it make for a time that doesn't seem to be all that profitable. So we want to make sure that we're looking at all these things and recognizing, again, every aspect of Scripture is important. And so there's this title here, and we've talked about some of the titles that Matthew uses of Christ, and Son of David is one of them. It's used nine times by, uh, by Matthew. Mark and Luke only use that title three times. This title, Son of David, is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. In of the of the... Nine times that Matthew uses it, eight times it refers to Jesus, and then one time it refers to the legal father of Jesus, which is Joseph. And we'll talk about that aspect at another time. 
it is an interesting observation that when you look at Matthew's genealogy, it breaks up into three groups of 14 generations. And if you've ever heard any introduction to Matthew, that's going to be touched on in one way or the other. The first grouping ends with David, and this structure seems to give a triple emphasis to the number 14. The number 14 represents David. If you use the Hebrew, and this is how, you know, I had to look this up to know how, I want to make sure I said it right, the Jumatria. And so there's an article in your bulletin about that. Now, let me say this about the Jumatria, and that's this idea that, that you know, various letters of the Hebrew language have a specific numeric number assigned to it. And sometimes when you read various articles about this, they talk about it being a tool that's used for interpretation. That is not what we're doing. We are not seeking to interpret the Bible. I do believe that these numbers at times will help us focus on certain things or notice that certain things are being emphasized. So the number 14 is important because I believe that Matthew is emphasizing David. But that doesn't alter our understanding of the passage. It's not an interpretive tool that we are using. Just like, and we are aware of numbers meaning certain things. You know, there's the number seven. Many times people say that the number seven is the number of perfection. I think it's a little misunderstood. It's actually the number of completion. There's a difference between completion and perfection. And it's the number of completion. But nonetheless, we know that it means that. And so you go to Isaiah and it talks about the seven spirits of God. And, you know, it's not that there's seven different spirits of God. The idea is that that, that, that number represents the the, the whole of the Holy Spirit, the essence of who God is. It's one thing. He, he's all these things if you, as you put them out. And so he's complete in every way. So that's being emphasized. So it doesn't change our understanding of that passage because as we study that passage, it becomes clear, I think, to many that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit and not seven spirits. So it gives us a, a, a helpful emphasis for that. So you can use that in that way. And so, you know, six is the number of man and Seven is the number of completion, and then you notice in the Bible that 40 is used a great deal. Now, if you ever read The Purpose Driven Church or The Purpose Driven Life, which I don't recommend, but you can read if you want to, uh, they make a big deal out of 40, I think, in a very unbiblical way. Uh, I think in one of the books, the introduction, it says that whenever God does something important, it, it involves 40. Really? Jesus was in the grave for three days and then rose again. To me, that's important, and that has nothing to do with 40. Uh, but, you know, people will make that, I guess, to make their, their statement or their emphasis. And I guess the idea and the purpose-driven life is if you do something for 40 days, then something miraculous will happen. Maybe it will. I don't know. Uh, I just think if you spent 40 days in the Bible, it would be good for you anyway. Uh, so that would always be good. Whether it's 40 days or 50, um, it would be good for you. So we want to make sure we don't get into numerology and making too much out of it. But you don't want to ignore it. Right? There, because there are, you know, there are certain things that are being emphasized. And so I think it's one of the ways that David, is, I mean David, that Matthew, as he writes to this Jewish audience, he wants them to be thinking in particular ways. And one of them is, again, that Jesus is the Messiah. The son of David is a messianic title. And so as he does the genealogies, and they divide up into 14, and then the name David, if you spell it in Hebrew, and you take whatever the numerical equivalent is of those numbers, it adds up to... 14. And so that's just being emphasized, and they would, they would understand that. And so the emphasis then on Jesus' identity as the son of David and his close association with David shows, I believe, and we'll see that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that appears in 2 Samuel 7. We will get there eventually. Um, 
God promised David through the prophet Nathan that one of his descendants would reign forever. Again, this Jewish audience, they were familiar with that. In fact, remember, they were they are looking for the Messiah to come. And in the Old Testament, there's a great deal about the Messiah coming and coming as a king. And so that, that's what a majority of them are thinking. And what they had overlooked, for whatever the reason, or maybe de-emphasized, is it also talks about the Messiah coming and, and there's this suffering servant, the, the suffering of the Messiah. That was obviously very important, but because there's so much in the Old Testament about him coming as a king, that you know, they were, that's what a majority of them were looking for. You know, they're under Roman rule, under really the Roman thumb, and yeah, we need a king to take care of them. Uh, and so that's what, that's what they're looking for. Again, overlooking the most important thing that had to happen first. And of course, you'll hear that brought up more and more again as you kind of work our way through this. So in the time of Jesus, Nathan's prediction was interpreted in its entirety as a prophecy about the, about the Messiah. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David, or the house of David, that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. So in that day, God is going to restore David's fallen tent. The previous references in the book of Amos to that day had spoken of that day as a day of darkness and destruction. But when Israel's ordeal is finally over, that day will also become the day of Israel's renewal. And again, they were familiar with that, and, they were, and many of them were looking forward to that. So God is going to reestablish David's tent. He's going to reestablish his tent over both the, both the northern and the southern kingdoms. The tent or the booth uh, or awning was made by setting up a simple frame and spreading branches over it. Its primary purpose was to shelter those that were under it, whether troops in the field or watchmen at his post or pilgrims at the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. But David's dynasty, which had been a protective canopy over all the people of Israel had fallen into the had fallen with the great schism, where you had the ten northern tribes who had separated from the two southern tribes, and so this booth had been broken in two. And so God promised to unite the two kingdoms once again under Davidic rule. He will restore this sheltering tent. He will repair its broken places, building it as it used to be. God will carry out his good promise to David that he would raise up a descendant after him and establish his rule forever. And so the people were familiar with this. They they knew their nation's history, how they had wandered from God over and over and over again. And God had really punished them. And then they repented, and and they came back, and God blessed them. And then this cycle happened over and over again. Then the day came when the nation did split. And it was a very sad day, because they were very proud of their nation. You know, they had enjoyed great blessings under God, great peace under God. They're pretty small nation. And they're no match for all these other nations that are out there with all their great armies. But when they were living in obedience to God and the submission of what he said, they had nothing to fear. And we see stories in the Old Testament of miraculous deliverances from their enemies. One of the most amazing was when the Assyrians had come in and there's over 180,000 troops ready to come in and do its business. And then they wake up one morning and a lot of dead soldiers. A lot of people are gone. What happened? Well, God had delivered them. No one, no one had to raise a sword. It was a truly an amazing thing, an amazing event that took place. 
God is going to protect them. So their idea then is being under the, this canopy of David's rule was a time of peace and comfort where they could live their life and enjoy the land and the fruits of their labor and enjoy their families and never have to worry about anything violent taking place. And so they were looking forward to that. They weren't experiencing that even under Roman rule. It was fairly peaceful as long as they did everything the Romans said. But even then, it, it, was, it was not a harmonious kind of existence. And so they were deeply troubled. But there were those who were deeply spiritual. And they understood that Rome was not their biggest problem. Rome was not the most important problem. The most important problem was their separation from God. What, what we at least should understand as believers today, when you have friends who may be unbelievers and they're going through a time of great turmoil, maybe their marriage is completely falling apart and there's just unhappiness everywhere, even though that is obviously very unfortunate and very sad, what we should be thinking about is that is not the most pressing problem. They're separated from God. And until that is addressed and taken care of, no matter what is worked out in that marriage, it's not going to be fulfilling. It's not really going to be lasting. It's not going to be satisfying. The most important thing is this relationship with God. When their heart is restored as it ought to be in relation to God, then all of these other blessings flow from that. Where is the ability to truly forgive within the confines of a marriage and move forward for that marriage to be completely whole and healed? Non-believers can talk about doing that, but what someone has done to them still lingers. We, we deal with that in various ways, and some it may linger in more obvious ways, but it's still back there. It, it is truly a part of their history. There may have been a, a partial healing, but it, that marriage is never going to be all that it can be. It is an impossibility. But when the heart is changed by Christ, and you have been forgiven for your sin, and all of your rebellion against God, you now have this capacity, because the Spirit of God also lives in you, and the love of God is important to your heart, you can truly forgive for everything. It doesn't mean that the memories are erased, there are scars, but scars don't only serve as reminders of the bad that's happened. It is a symbol of healing. There's healing that's there. And they can have, that marriage can then be everything that God intended. It really can. But unless the issue of sin is dealt with, it cannot. And we understand that. That's how we should view these things and understand them. Even when it comes to individuals who may have a substance abuse problem. That's a symptom. It can really mess up their life in every way. And if they get sober, it is a good thing. If they overcome their problem, that, that is, it's good. And we're happy for them. But their life is still incomplete. They're never going to be able to experience the depths of joy that can come in this life if they're still separated from God. It's a shallow existence at best. Sometimes, maybe often, people are willing to settle for that. We should never be willing to settle for that. And if you have friends who are happy that they've overcome their addiction but they've not come to Christ, you need to ask God to help you to find ways 
to let them know that they have settled for a form of happiness in their life, for a form of satisfaction, for a form of relief from maybe worry and anxiety. If they wanted to experience the depths of joy and restoration, it only comes by being rightly related to God. And so we recognize then the most important aspects. And so there were those in Israel who understood that Israel had all these other issues, one of them being Rome. But that wasn't the most important thing. There was something keeping them that would always keep them from experiencing this peace that is promised to them by God in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The prophet here looks beyond David himself to David's father, Jesse, as the one who's going to begin the line of the Messiah. He's the, he's the, the grandfather, so to speak. The stump of Jesse impl- implies that a great oak that has been, been felled, the Davidic dynasty would topple and meet its apparent demise. The stump of Jesse refers to the defunct Davidic dynasty. However, just as a shoot sometimes emerges from what appears to be only a dead stump, so God revived the Davidic dynasty through the reign of the Messiah. The descendants of David had ruled over God's people for 400 years. When Zedekiah's sons were executed before his eyes, and Zedekiah himself was blinded and taken prisoner to Babylon, that's not only spoken of by Jeremiah, we covered that when we went through Lamentations. It seemed that the Davidic dynasty then had ended. It appeared that Nathan's prophecy had failed. At the time of Jesus' birth, a descendant of David had not ruled as king over Israel for nearly 600 years. As the son of David, Matthew recognizes Jesus as that shoot or branch. Not about you, but 600 years. It would seem that the son, having faith in the scriptures and in what God had promised them, that he would restore them, and it's been 600 years they've been waiting. That, that does require an immense, I would think, amount of faith. This absolute trust in what God has said, because there is nothing on the horizon that would say, oh yeah, God's bringing his promise. I mean, what do you have to go by? All you have is what God has said hundreds of years ago. God is is faithful and true to his word. His timetable is very different. We need to keep that in mind. Not that you and I may have to wait 600 years, because that would actually be physically impossible. But this idea that sometimes, you know, when we wait six hours for something, we think that God maybe has abandoned us. We want a completely different timetable. You know, we want, we want stuff like right now. You know, the little kids, they want Christmas tomorrow. Or maybe tonight, you know, kind of a thing. And this waiting is just insufferable. And when it comes to us and God, you know, this, this waiting can be extremely difficult. But God's doing things his way and his time. And what to us seems like a long time, God's like, it's, it's on time. I, I'm not sure what you're worried about, but it's going to happen when, when I've determined it will happen. And, and we are to trust that. Interestingly, in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, it reads this way. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
he should be called a Nazarene. So look at the books that I was looking at when I was studying this. They say that the names Nazarene and Nazareth are derivatives of the Hebrew word meaning branch, in, which is the word branch used in Isaiah chapter 11. And so when you look at the etymological aspects of that word, it means branch place or branch person. There's a reason for all of that. He's, he's not just living in Nazareth because God just picked that city. And you know, later on, you know, when Jesus is picking his disciples, someone says, what good things can come out of Nazareth? Well, it's not just because the city was looked down upon. That word has meaning. It, it, they would make that connection. When the, when the Jewish individuals read this, they would make that connection to this branch that's talked about in Matthew. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Yeshua, or Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David is, again, also the Messiah, and the Pharisees acknowledge that, that the Messiah is the son of David. Let me read to you from the book of Matthew 22, beginning verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you, what do you think about the Christ, or what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, Son of David. So they're all thinking this. So this title used by Matthew for Jesus, again, is not just, oh, because it sounds nice. He, Matthew's not sitting there thinking, you know, you know, Jesus is Jewish, I'm Jewish, I'm reminding the Jewish people, I think I'll use this. That, that's not what's going on. This is done purposely. It carries great meaning, great weight for the people. And reminds them of the covenants of God, the promises of God, what God has said, that God meant what he said. And they're living, obviously, in very exciting times. In fact, in that passage, Jesus kind of does a correction uh, with, uh, with the Pharisees, but he never denies that the Messiah is, is the Davidic son. In fact, he just insists to them that the Messiah is more than just a mere human descendant of their greatest king. He is more than that, that because the Messiah is David's Lord. And so again, these are things that, that many of these individuals would not have really thought about or understood until it was being explained to them right there in front of them. David was the king that God had promised, because God did promise Israel a king. Now Saul was the first king, and when you go through the Old Testament, you know, the people were demanding a king. But they were demanding a king in, in a sinful way. They said, we want a king so we can be like other nations. And some people can kind of come confused because earlier on in, in the Old Testament, God had promised a king. And so, so why is Israel bad when they ask for a king? Well, because they were to wait for God to give them a king in his way, in his timing. And they're, ask, they're not asking for a king in, promise of, in, in fulfillment of God's promise. They're saying, we want a king to be like the other nations. And that's a problem. So they picked their king. God let them. And basically, to kind of paraphrase everything, they picked the tallest guy in the kingdom. He looks like a king. And it's kind of like, you know, you watch some movie, and you go, oh, they picked the right guy for that part. Why? Well, he looks like the part. <laughs> you know, they could have picked somebody else. If you saw the movie for some, you go, he looks like the part. But anyway, the idea was, you know, Saul was head and shoulders with everybody else. That's the guy they picked. And he was the wrong guy. And it was disastrous, to say the least. Even though it kind of started out pretty good. It didn't end up that way. So the people were rebelling to God. They demanded a king so they could be like other nations. Uh, and so we have this problem. So David was the great king that God had promised in Deuteronomy 17. Again, that was maybe some 400 years earlier. And it's about 1,000 years when you read the promises that God made to Abraham. He said, 
in, in his line of descendants would come kings. It's been a thousand years since then. So God is never in a hurry. That's for sure. So if you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, turn there for a moment, and then after you do that, go ahead then and turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 17. We're going to do a very quick comparison uh, when it comes to God's promises, the Davidic covenant and whatnot. Um, kind of give us a, a little more information so that we can have this view and foundation as we move into the book of Matthew itself. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, it reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in this, when you read this, God is speaking of Solomon. And he does state that Solomon's going to commit iniquity. He's going to sin. Even giving wisdom to a sinful man is not enough to guarantee the high requirements to fulfill the covenant. And we're all asked for, for wisdom. And he's given wisdom. But, I mean, Solomon asked for wisdom. He's given wisdom. He's considered incredibly wise, but it doesn't keep him from sin. Because our own wisdom can't keep us from sin. God-given wisdom cannot keep you from sin. There has to be a transformation of the heart. Wisdom can undermine sin, but it cannot stop it in its tracks. So David has promised that he will be the head of a dynasty. David will die, his son will become king, and he will build the temple, and, and God will establish his throne. Not Solomon himself for eternity, but he's going to establish the throne of David for eternity. Solomon will sin, and God will have to punish him, but God's loyal love will not be removed from Solomon as it was from Saul. So the Davidic house, the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingdom will be eternal. Now, if you look at 1 Chronicles 17, sometimes some of the books you read will say that this is a parallel passage, the same thing. There's differences. And I do think those differences are important. They're not just happenstance. Because it changes what he's talking about to a degree. It makes, it, makes things more, much more clear. So beginning in verse 10. Moreover, I would declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So, the Samuel passage spoke of one of David's own sons, which is Solomon. Chronicles is speaking of a descendant of one of David's sons because there's a phrase that's, not, that's missing here that you had in, in Samuel. The phrase is, who shall come from your body. That's not in here. That's not just an oversight. I believe there's a reason for that because he's not speaking of Solomon. He is speaking of Jesus. This descendant, I believe, will also build God a temple uh, you also will notice that in the Chronicle passage, there's no mention of him committing iniquity. It's because Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't sin. Solomon does that. That's why you have that there in, um, in Samuel, but not here. So 
in essence, there are four eternal things promised, and we'll get to those again later as we, as we move along. But there's an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal purpose. So the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll talk a little more as we also work our way through the book of Matthew, and the Davidic covenant, these two primarily, they will find their fulfillment in the new covenant that is ushered in by the promised one, the seed, the branch, the servant, the king, who is also the prince of peace. So as long as these, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and some of the other covenants, as long as they're linked to the Mosaic covenant, they were incapable of fulfillment. They had to be allied with a different covenant, one that was free of demands upon the sons of men to rise up to an ethical standard which they were simply powerless to attain. What was required was a new line of humanity, and that's what was Jesus was here to deliver. Again, from our reading this morning of Psalm 89, looking again at verses 3 and 4, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Then when you jump to verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. As one individual stated, even when the party with whom the Lord makes a covenant breaks the terms, its binding nature obligates the Lord to fulfill its terms. The Lord himself will secure the Davidic dynasty. And you'll see that with these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Man's disobedience, his inability and at times refusal to meet his obligations does not nullify the fulfillment of those covenants. It can delay their fulfillment, but it doesn't nullify them because its fulfillment is based on only one individual, God himself. God has taken the oath. God has promised. That aspect of that, part of that to me is very important because in the new covenant, God has promised me salvation. It is not based on my goodness before salvation, and it's definitely not based on my obedience after. I am going to fail God. I already have. I have sinned. The fulfillment of the new covenant is based on who? God. He has saved me. Christ has paid the penalty. I believe in him, and regardless of my sin, regardless of the sins I commit after salvation, I am going to heaven. That doesn't give me a free card to go and sin. But it does mean because I'm going to sin. So even if I am in the middle of sinning when I die, I pray that doesn't happen. But if I'm in the middle of sinning when I die, I'm going to heaven. Because it's not based on, my, on me being sinless or being sinless at the moment of my death. It's based on Christ and what he's done. And God is consistent through all the Bible when it comes to his covenants. He says what he means and means what he says, and he fulfills it. Let me, let me uh, say it this way. Sin makes it impossible to fulfill the covenant law or the Mosaic covenant. 
that ensures the failure of the Mosaic Covenant, and the Bible says as much. The New Covenant is the key to covenant success. Not only does the New Covenant replace the old Mosaic Covenant, which again the Bible says, but through its provision of forgiveness and salvation, it guarantees the eventual fulfillment of the other unilateral covenants in the Bible. The Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Priestly Covenant, uh, and the Davidic Covenant. If they will be fulfilled to the letter and the consistency of God from the Old Testament to the New, our, the covenant God we believe in, it's a kind of a language that's unique to Christians, and we probably should use that term more often. He's a covenant God. You go to the Bible to find out what covenants are and what they mean and how binding they are. God has obligated himself to himself. He's obligated himself to us. And that's why we have this assurance that when we die, we are going to go to heaven. We are, we are forgiven of our sin. And I'm going to be with him for all of eternity. That is, that is the, the assurance I have for some of my relatives that I knew before they died, that they were Christians. I will see them because of what God has done, because of the, he is a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God. And I will see them. And I know that I will see them in the sense that not just only are they there, I will be there, not because I'm a pastor, not because I now sin less than I did before, not because I'm ever sinless, that would never happen, it's because of what Christ has done. And that's why there is so much for us to praise God for and, and to rejoice when we gather together as believers. And while we sing our songs to him and about him and remind him to encourage him, because this, this life at times can be overbearing. And there is suffering in this life. But part of our perspective is what? There's a day coming when that won't be anymore. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just that we're just a group of individuals who are all drinking the Kool-Aid and somehow we've been deluded because the antidepressants that have been pumped into the Kool-Aid are strong and we're all going to stand together, sing Kumbaya, and be happy when we die. No, it's much more than that. And it's not that at all. It's because of the promises of God and God cannot lie. And God has proven himself over and over and over again to be true to all that he says. And, and so that, and when we read the Bible, it reads much differently to us than it would probably to others. It's not just an encyclopedia of stories. It's not just a spiritual way of feeling better about yourself. It's reality. God deals with the ugly truth of sin, and there's the marvelous gifts of forgiveness and grace and a future that we look forward to as believers. And all this is found only in Christ, which takes us back to Matthew chapter 1. At this moment in time, at that particular time arranged by God, picked by God, God determined to fulfill his covenants and his promises by sending his son Christ to deal with the absolute singular problematic issue, our separation from God, our sin. And does that for our benefit, showing his glory, his greatness, his mercy, as well as expressing the consistency of his wrathful judgment for sin, all of those things come into vivid detail as we experience the blessings of salvation. And so Christ's coming is not only an historical event, in the sense that it really did happen, but it is of great and utmost importance for all of mankind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the marvelous word of God, the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that we have the Bible. 
Without this, Lord, we would not know these things about you and who you are and what you've promised. We would not understand your consistency and your wrath and your love. We would be lost in darkness trying to figure things out that we would never be able to figure out. And in your greatness and kindness, you have preserved for us in a very unique way the written word. And we all live right now, Lord, in a place and time where all of us have a copy of your word, or we have access to multiple copies of your word. We live in a place and time where we can hear many learned men and women who study your word explain to us and help us to understand all that the Bible says. And Father, we, whether we are always aware of it or not, we have a great confidence in living life because we have your word and we do have an understanding of the truth that is there. And we pray, Lord, that these truths would continually be deeply burned into our hearts and minds. That, Father, they may deeply affect us as you continue to transform us into the image of your Son, Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your wisdom. That, Father, we may live in wisdom. That, Father, we may give out your wisdom. That, Father, we together, as we look forward to the coming of Christ and being with you for all of eternity, look for that day to come. And Father, as we always do, we want to pray, Lord, for those who may be on the edge, for those who are on the outside looking in, for those, Father, who do not have that assurance because they've not trusted in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to understand that nothing happens by accident, which includes even the birth of Christ. It was not just some story that just happened to happen in the Middle East at a particular time. But Lord, it was a purposeful action by you, intended for our benefit. Father, we may be reconciled to you. And I pray, Father, you'd help them to, to understand that and that you would open their eyes to see their need for Christ and they would trust. So, Father, we ask now that as we bring our time to a close, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to remind us of these things and, again, that they would encourage and strengthen our hearts. Thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>